Lord, we do thank you for this new day, and we thank you that uh, there's not many of us here this morning. We have the window back in, so we can have a little bit of heat. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us, you would watch over us, and that you would guide our conversation and give us your peace. So we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's okay, Corinne. It's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't hear about Carmen. So we would you would you like to continue with this or what would you, what's your pleasure? Yeah. Okay. All right. For those of you watching, um, a member of our church, I was I was just telling one of the members of the Sunday school that a member of our church got a text from her son yesterday afternoon that that she went into the hospital and there um, there were some heart issues and so they are doing tests to see what the next step is for her. And um, I sent out an email to the church. Not everybody would get that, of course. All right, let's talk about let's talk about Romans six. Romans five ends with a conversation about sin. And Paul basically makes the comment that law, even though it has the intention and the capability of curtailing sin, also has a dynamic of intensifying sin. In other words, Sometimes we sin because desire grabs us or we desire something. And sometimes we sin because we there's a part of us that enjoys being lawless. Um, there's something thrilling. American culture has this quite deeply. There's something that feels heroic. It feels powerful. It feels thrilling about breaking and defying the law. And rebellion has that sense to it within us, that rebellion makes us feel powerful, makes us feel almost divine. It puts us sort of on the top of the hierarchy because it puts us in competition with law. And then at the end of chapter 5, Paul makes the point that grace increases to address not only law-breaking in terms of like something as a function of desire, but grace increases to deal with Rebellion, which is in some ways more problematic. And so then he begins chapter 6. What shall we say then? 
are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? That's the, the answer that sort of kicks it off. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And Paul is now getting at later, he's going to say basically the wages of sin is death. And we're going to talk about death quite a bit here. Um, and now remember, sin sort of has two different aspects. One definition is mark missing, where sin is failing to, you can see it in terms of potential, failing to achieve potential, failing to hit the mark. But another aspect of sin is, again, rebellion. And so the wages of sin is death. And mark missing will kill us, and rebellion will kill us. And also, we should remember that there's sort of law number one, which is immediate law, uh, laws of nature, let's say, are sort of immediate law. And law number two is mediated law. And we've talked about these, these things all the way through the class. All right. So, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And two weeks ago, we talked about baptism as ordeal. Now, part of what we're going to wrestle with in this class is, for a lot of those watching, it'll be a familiar word, participation. And participation is something that is always with us, but seldom noticed. Um, this past January, there was the um, celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And in Sacramento, one of the ways that Dr. King's birthday is celebrated and remembered is a march. And people will go downtown and people will participate in this march. Now, if you know any of the history, um, another big participation, really a religious ceremony in American culture, is the protest march. And you see this almost whenever there is something that happens that a certain group of people believe there's a violation of something. For example, uh, every year in Washington, there will be a something like a march 
for life. And let's say it's people who are protesting the legalization of abortion. Okay? Martin Luther King Jr. marches ostensibly have a connection to the civil rights movement in American history, which was predominantly moved forward by marching in the South through cities that had Jim Crow legislation. And these marches were um, often attacked, and then the attacking of the marchers was filmed, and the arrest of the marchers went to trial. And for example, one of the most iconic, and that word isn't incidental, elements of that was Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. So you have this entire ceremony surrounding a situation in the world, and the march was key. It was an element of how to change, and it had a profound change in the United States, and it's part of the reason it continues to endure, how to change the, well, the lives of African Americans, not only in the South, but in the North. But at that point, the focus was in the South and the Jim Crow states and the legislature. Now, one might ask, let's say a whole bunch of people are upset with the price of gasoline. And so they decide to march. And so Everybody organizes downtown, and they're all going to march, and they're going to protest the price of gasoline. Now, somebody could say, well, the price of gasoline is sort of supply and demand. It's related in California to environmental policies. It's related to refineries. It's related to Ukrainian war, it's related to relations in the Middle East, it's related to uh, legislation with respect to where you can and cannot do drilling in North America, on and on and on and on and on. What on earth does a march have to do with the price of gasoline? But if in fact the march, if, if just Corinne and I said, Corinne and Rick and Pete and Roger and Edie said, we're upset at the price of gasoline. We're going to march and we decide we're going to meet over on the Capitol steps downtown this week, Tuesday. And the six of us get assigned together and we start there at the Capitol Mall and we walk down. Um, we walk down the street with our sign yelling about the price of gasoline. Probably nothing will happen. Maybe, you know, if I've got some connections. I can call in a favor from some people who work in the Capitol or some people who work in local media. If the news covers it, it'll get a little bit more. Now, if you really want to have a march that gets attention, get thousands, if not hundreds of thousands to participate, and then suddenly 
politicians pay attention. News media pays attention. Um, business pays attention. If violence breaks out in the march and store windows get broken and fires are lit, that will change it. Um, if the mark, if the march is completely peaceful, that will change it. And so what happened in, obviously, in the civil rights movement in the South was all of this drama unfolded. It got picked up by national media. In Selma, Alabama, for example, the police let the dogs out, fire hoses. These now have iconic standing that changes the consciousness of the nation entire, okay? So what would seem to be something completely disconnected to everything? A group of people are going to walk down the street, they're going to have signs, they're going to sing songs, and then they're going to go home. How should that change anything? But it does. Why now? some 70s, 80s, 90s, 50 years later, 60 years later, on the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., do people still gather together to march down the street? They want, what they want is to participate. And when they participate in that March, they start having feelings. They feel like they're right there in Selma, Alabama. They feel like they're on the Pettus Bridge. They feel like they are participating in, and we watch the language, an iconic moment. Okay. We use that word iconic. What do we mean there by an iconic moment? We mean that in some ways, even though they're standing on a street in Sacramento in 2023, part of them is transported back into Selma, Alabama. In 1960, what was the year of that main march? 63, 62? It's right around there. He was, of course, he was killed in 63. But they, they, they feel like they're right there in Selma in 63. And you might say, well, is it a time machine? Kind of. Now, there's a, there's a world of differences between Sacramento in 2023 and Selma in 1963. But there's a sense of participation. It's emotional. And there's a physical layer to it. And there is a... There is a spiritual (laughs) 
there's a spiritual layer to it. Because what happens then, the re, then let's say in Sacramento in 2023, people are taking lots of other issues, some of them connected with race, some of them connected with race in their mind, and they're connecting it to that, and they're saying these things are the same. Okay? We're talking about baptism. Baptism, in that sense, is analogous to the march. Our baptism, we participate. Now, this is the words of Paul. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, one of the questions that I get from some of the people who watch this video are going to be, why do you keep, why do you keep stressing the relationship between baptism and drowning? Because drowning is, is death by water. Okay. Well, so how does this work? Because all of us know that baptism is only a ceremonial drowning. If we were, in fact, to be drowning men, women, and infants, in church ceremonies, um, it wouldn't, <laughs> everything would change. So it's only a ceremonial drowning. But the march, here's a question what is the march a ceremony of? Isn't a march a ceremony of a mob? When you can see this in movies like Inception. The, and, and part of the part of the trick which Gandhi and King understood about the relationship between a march and a mob is People know that, and we see this all the time in marches, you get a lot of people together walking down a street. Well, what happens when you walk down the street? What do the police have to do? They close the street. When you, mar when you, mar when you march down a street, what often happens with marches is that they can turn into a mob. What's, what is the same and what is different between a march and a mob? Well, you have the potential of violence and you have the potential of, and in fact, the potential of a body of people, and this is why if you have six people in a march, nobody pays attention. If you have a thousand people in a march, people pay some attention. If you have a hundred thousand people in a march, 
people pay more attention. And, you know, the, uh, the Nation of Islam organized what they called a million-man march. You have a million people in a march, people pay even more attention. I remember in the 1970s in New York City, or it might have been 1980. No, it was the 1970s. Uh, I went down to one of these events in New York City. It was an anti-nuclear, it was, it was basically a anti-nuclear weapons demonstration that I think, I mean, it had hundreds, I mean, it was a massive number of people. And it was not violent. And that then is the line of demarcation between a march and a mob. You have the potential for violence, but the idea is that you have one, in a sense, one consciousness, one body made up of many, many, many people. So another thing that you put over here would be an army. Because an army, you know, if we look at this word march, one of the things that they do when they take soldiers into the army, and again, it seems, to us it seems like odd. It made more sense thousands of years ago because thousands of years ago, if you had an army, and let's say you had spears, you had everyone line up, and the whole idea was to hold the line so that you could win the battle. And Greek phalanxes um, and other military formations, they would basically take all of these men, line them up, have them act like one body to kill the other side. So there's the, very, there's the, the ancestral thing. And the way you trained men to do this was you would have them march, and they still do this today. You get you get a platoon, you get a group of soldiers, you get a squad, and they march. And it's all about getting there, getting them to step together, getting them to march together, getting them, and it's all about taking a group of people and in a sense making one body out of them so that they can all act like one thing, like they have one consciousness, one focus, can achieve one purpose. That's the whole idea behind an army and march. Now, you can also have a marching band. And the whole idea behind a marching band is that you have all of these different instruments. And, of course, you can have a band in a concert hall. There's something special about a marching band where they all move around in a very coordinated effort to achieve one thing. The mob is basically a demonic version of an army because a mob has elements of a unified consciousness, but I say it's a demonic version because mobs only destroy. And if you decide to organize a march and it devolves into a mob, you will not achieve your purpose. 
Now, all of these things are connected. And, well, if you join the army, you will, you know, back in, back in the day and during the Vietnam era, you joined the army and the first thing they did was cut off all your long hair in the 60s. And they put on a uniform and they cut your hair. They take away your individuality. They march you. You take oaths. And the individual now is placed into a larger body. And the purpose of that is so that all of them can move as one and they will live or die together. Okay. Now, Christ says here, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We were baptized into <coughs> his death. Right away, it should be obvious to us that Paul is talking about something different because he says we are baptized into Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus there is a collective. It's analogous to an army. It's analogous to a distributed body full of persons. And baptism in that sense is similar to the army haircut. It's similar to when Martin Luther King Jr. would organize a march. His organization trained the marchers. They trained the marchers so that the march would not become a mob. And that training of the marchers was key to the success of the march because he knew that, in fact, they marched in places so that the police would become a mob. And it was, it's that entire confrontation that, it's not all that there was, but that mobilized and galvanized and made the civil rights movement a success. Because the government army, in that sense, broke down into the mob and lost legitimacy and the protesters gained legitimacy and were seen as basically having a connection to heaven. That's essentially what happened in the movement. People would watch it on TV and they would say, the police are the illegitimate mob, 
and the protesters are the legitimate group, and they are in the right. And so the only way for the government to respond was for the government to get their troops in line. And so, for example, when you saw the integration of the schools and you saw National Guard troops, Eisenhower sends National Guard troops, National Guard troops to make sure that the law was fulfilled, the nation sees that and says, there now suddenly, heaven, which in this case was like the government, and law are in order. Okay. This goes further in with Paul and Christ, again, participation, in that we're baptized into his death. When it's a common thing in movies to see someone fake their death. And we might think, what would be the purpose of faking a death? What might, be, what might be a purpose of faking a death? Collect insurance. Get out of jail. Get out of debt. Death is a breaking of the normal order. Um, Let's say the mob is after you. you. Fake your death to get out of, that's basically to get out of a debt or to get out of jail or to win insurance. In the Roman world, a slave was basically a non-person or a dead person. So when you would fall into slavery. Let's say you were married. When you became a slave, the marriage was ended. Another thing you get out of in death is a marriage. You get out of a family. And a slave people often went into slavery to get out of debt. And it was sort of this, slavery was sort of this shadowy realm because a slave was partly dead in that a bunch of things were taken away, but not completely dead because slaves in that sense could be resurrected. And so let's say if a slave got out of slavery and they wanted to return to their spouse, they would have to get remarried. And you notice the ceremonies in all of this where 
Okay, the marriage was ended by death. And then if the slave is to get remarried, and, you know, this, if it comes to the American antebellum period, you always had these questions about, let's say, slaves and marriage, slaves and property. Because if you're a slave, you also really don't own property. Now, that's, again, another one of sort of these shadowy figures that slavery is kind of between all of them. Now, death is being played with in this, in this way. For we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. And again, symbolically, there's another symbolic connection between baptism. Now, now again, people are going to listen to this because I got the questions last time. Paul, are you saying that the only form of baptism is, is immersion? No, because immersion is symbolic of drowning, just like um, because we don't actually hold them under until they die. It's still symbolic. And whether you use immersion or the two other forms, the form that likely was used by John and Jesus, we don't know for sure, but we have some very early drawings, was likely they were in water and they took water up and they poured it over their head. One way or another, it has to do with water over the head. Whether it's sprinkling, the amount of water isn't as important, but the idea is that the head goes underwater because it's a ceremonial drowning. And burial is in basically a similar thing, whether it's water or dirt, it doesn't matter, you're under. And you can get suffocated by dirt as easily as you can get suffocated by water. It's a similar thing. We were buried, therefore, with him, that's participation, by baptism, that's the means, into death. Death is that new status. The new status of the things in the world that held you in life no longer hold you in death. One of the things in this world that holds us in life, all sorts of things hold us in life that no longer hold us in death. And that's the point here. Once Christ dies, the things of this world that hold all of us in life are broken by death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay. So the idea here is that there's life of this world and death and there's a new life beyond the death. And that is not something. Now, Americans hear that. Secular people hear that. Materialist people hear that. They get skeptical. Is there really new life beyond death? 
Well, almost all people have been thinking that for a very long time. And the assertion is there. Now, when you ask people about new life beyond death, well, usually the idea is no more decay. Because decay is in this life. So, and then there's lots of other questions. Well, what are the aspects of new life after death? No more decay. No more sin. There's all these elements that are culturally common in this. Now, part of how this works is Paul is, of course, talking to living people. And he is saying, by baptism, by going under the water, which sometimes the water's this way, drowned into, by going under the water, yet on this side of this line of death, you have new life on this side of the grave. See, the argument before was, again, if law can incite rebellion, now the way to get out of that is new life. And this also has to deal with law because let's look at, let's say we establish a law against succeeding in suicide. What's the irony of writing a law making successful suicide illegal? <laughs> They're still dead. You, well, how are you going to punish the guilty? Now, again, I didn't, make, I didn't say they made a law against attempting suicide, because if you have a law against attempting suicide, well, you can hold those who are unsuccessful at suicide to account for violating the law. But if you have a law against accomplishing suicide, the law makes no sense. Now, throughout history, there have been a number of ways of trying to get at people after death. How can you do that? Usually, you go after their heirs. You go after their estate. Sometimes you exhume the body and you burn it <laughs> or you mutilate it. I mean, there's all these ways that people have tried to get around this, but they all have a sense of feeling hollow because once they're dead, they're beyond the reach of the law. And now, again, you can begin to put together Paul's arguments about the limitations of the law. So, the argument here, the, the metaphor, the, the symbolism behind this is that we have new life, we participate in the new life in Christ by participating in his death through baptism so that the law 
no longer has grip on us. Now, there's going to be various laws. It's going to talk about the law of sin and death, no longer has a grip on us. It's going to talk about other laws, no longer having a grip on us, the way laws no longer have grips on dead people. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, again, that's participation, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So now we're moving on and we say, well, here was Jesus. He was crucified. And he rose and is, by that means, we see he is the Christ. Okay? If we are united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, and we will reign with him. Now, it's important what happens in the Christian story. You have the incarnation, you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, and you have the ascension. And this drama, Paul is saying, we participate in this drama. Now, we're starting here because we start, we're dead in our sin, and then we are united with Christ in his suffering, and we are raised by him, and we will, in a sense, ascend with him to reign. There's the gospel. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's pretty simple. But what's the difficulty we face? Isn't it believing it? Because, well, most of our stories go like this. We're living, and then we die, and, well, then various groups are going to have different ideas about that. Um, I was just listening this morning to a conversation about medically assisted in death. This is a big deal in Canada right now. Um, California and Canada put into law in, in 2016 some notion of medically assisted suicide. And in 2021, the about 400 Californians participated in medically assisted suicide. Um, and in Canada, about 10,000 people did. And California is close in 
population size to Canada. And so then the question is, why are so many people dying in Canada by this program? And the suspicion is that the answer is Canada, because it has basically single-payer, government-controlled health care, Canada is suggesting to people that, um, yeah, we're not really too able to address your pain and suffering and not really able to offer you all of the medical treatment that would alleviate your life and help your life be meaningful. So why don't you just let us end your life right now? And, you know, it's, it's one thing, and given the numbers in California, it, it's one thing if basically, and this is a little bit, there, there's something to this conversation that's a little bit deceptive. And if you're familiar with how most people die, or a lot of people die these days, you know that they have a host of medical conditions. And at some point, someone decides to stop treatment and the person, let's say, naturally dies. Or you stop treatment and they put you on morphine as a way to kill the pain. And they keep upping the morphine dose until you die. And a lot of people are dying in this way. But given the fact that in California, only 400, this medically assisted suicide is, it's sort of a gray area. And that, say, 400 people decided to do this in California and 10,000 people decided to do this in Canada, it's likely that the government had a degree of interest in hurrying this along for a good number of people, and then suddenly questions about, are you doing this because there's no family members that speak up for them? Are you doing this because um, they're, um, this is going to save the government a lot of money? And suddenly all these other issues arise, and so basically a lot of people are dying in this way. And But now a big part of this has to do with the culture surrounding the question of death. Because, well, so we have life, and then we have death, and what comes after it? Well, people have ideas about bliss, heaven, everything being sort of positive, or they have ideas about nothing, null. Just when you die, it's like never having been born. Except, of course, here on Earth, your family might grieve you, but if you have no family, probably part of the reason you let the government do this to you. Okay. The Christian story, again, is Christ descends 
Read that in the Gospel of John. Incarnation takes on human form, is crucified, is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, and we will reign with him. At the end of the story, you have a new heavens and a new earth coming down from heaven in the book of Revelation. And this is essentially what Paul is talking about here. If we die like him, we will be raised with him, and we will reign with him. That's the Christian story. If we die like him, we will be raised like him, and we will reign with him. Well, how are we united with him in his death? Baptism. In baptism, we are united with him in his death. But that, there's the ceremony. And sometimes people want to say, well, it just requires the ceremony. And the church has always been a little uneasy with that. Because when Paul says here, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in new lists of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is a death like his? Does that mean that in order for us to participate in the resurrection, we have to find a Sanhedrin to find us guilty of blasphemy. And there has to be a Roman. Um, so you have a client state handing Jesus over to Roman guards. Convicted by Pontius Pilate. Put on a cross. Is, is, that, the like, is that the likeness? Well, we look at that and we say, well, probably not. That would seem a little too strict. Um, what, what is the likeness of his death that is important for us to participate in so that we also participate in his resurrection? And in many ways, so much of Christian theology and Christian conversation for the last 2,000 years has revolved around that. We want to know what behaviors are important. We want to know what beliefs are important. We want to know what is required for participation. Because participation is the means by which all of this happens. Now, let's go back to an MLK march. Because there's participation. Well, it isn't, there's certainly some behaviors that are involved in, let's think about Martin Luther King Jr. Now, in the life of Martin Luther King Jr., there are good behaviors to emulate, and there are bad behaviors not to emulate. There's both. 
because he, of course, is a human being with strengths and weaknesses. He's a hero in many ways, but there are other aspects of his life that were certainly not worthy of emulation. The point about Christ is, and why we say Christ had no sin, was because there aren't aspects of Christ's life that are not worthy of emulation. But even in the analogy of, let's say, Martin Luther King Jr. and the march, I would argue that many of the aspects of Dr. King were borrowed from Christ. And even Gandhi, King got some of this stuff from Gandhi, but even Gandhi borrowed them from Christ. What did Dr. King borrow from Christ? Nonviolence. Let's say substitutionary marching. Because here's the thing about Dr. King. Dr. King, he's Martin Luther King Jr. Well, who was Daddy King? Daddy King was one of the most prominent preachers in Atlanta. Dr. King did not grow up in a poor household. In Atlanta, even though they were black, in terms of having a life in the South, as a black family, the kings had it about as good as it could be had. They had political status. They weren't off the charts wealthy, but Dr. King, as a young man, could go to a good school, could get a good education. He, in fact, had a lot of opportunity in his life to have a better life. And so, he had a good education, and but when he finished his education, a lot of people did not want him to move back down south, did not want him to take a church in the south, but in fact, he did take a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and in this way, Dr. King could have had a very different life if he had used his education, used his degree to live in a northern city, perhaps teach in a northern theological seminary. He could have had, he married a, a lovely woman, had lovely children. He could have had a very nice life in the north. But instead, he moved to the south and decided to, and then if you know anything about the story of the uh, of the uh, boy of the, um, did he go to Montgomery or Birmingham? I don't remember. Because it was the Montgomery boy, it was the bus boycott. There was the bus boycott, and they're working on this bus boycott, and the older ministers of the town didn't want to have too many chips on this bus boycott because they thought it would fail. And they thought it would fail because they had, um, they had questions as to what degree the boycott would hold. And so when they were looking around for a figurehead to lead this, they picked a younger preacher who didn't have, you know, the other guys had felt like they had too much to lose by backing an effort 
that might fail, but then of course it succeeded and that then launched him to national prominence and up he went. And so there are a number of aspects of King's life that are in alignment with Christ that gave the civil rights movement its power. And we can say, even in within the frame of this world, because Dr. King was, and how was he now? He wasn't killed exactly like Christ. Christ is still much more of an archetypal figure. Um, it would have been more like Christ if he had been killed by the government. But he was killed by an assassin. You can look at another Christ figure, let's say Bonhoeffer, is killed by the Nazis. And then King is killed by an assassin's bullet, but, well, in a sense, he is, his stone figure is on the Washington Mall. And there's a holiday named after him, and people participate onto today in his marches. So you can see the pattern. And he ascends in that sense to the, let's say, pantheon of American figures. It could very well be that someday his face will be on a coin. Possible. Or on money. Who else's faces are on American money? Presidents. Not always. Hamilton was never a president. Bonhoeffer dies like Christ, is raised with Christ in a sense. But in all of those stories, we look at them and say, it's like Christ, but not all the way. Because again, Jesus is killed, and even the elements of the story, his own people, his own friend betrays him, but then he's killed by the reigning rulers of the day, the government, and he is raised, wounds in his hand, uh, Thomas doubts until he can touch him, and then he ascends, and there's the story. And so we have these other figures, we have Christ, which is, let's say, 100%. And you might look at MLK and say, well, he participates in this to a degree. You might look at Bonhoeffer and say he participates in this to a degree, but you can see that there is participation in this. Did any of this make any sense? Yeah. And, and in our lives, you know, because again, as I said, so much of what sort of boils down to this is, okay, if, what is our death like his? Every time we act in the Christian life, let's say we, we give up some of our time to serve another. We give up some of our money to serve another. 
we give up some of our life, let's say as a mother, a mother, the good mother invests in the child at the cost of her life. Now, when we say at the cost of her, her life, part of it, we mean her time, her money, her effort, her attention. Those are little bits of our life. You know, in a, in a really dramatic way, a mother who would, you know, exchange her life for that of her daughter would do so at the cost of her life. And so this is, this thing goes all the way down. If we live like Christ, we will die like Christ, we will be raised with Christ, and we will live again as and with Christ. And there's both a way that that's true in this life and in the next. Because you can see that already in something like Dr. King's life. Dr. King, in a sense, reigns like Christ now because people still look at him as an ideal for how to arrange their life. And they want to participate in the march downtown. And so it's like Christ. But it's not fully there. There's still a degree to which it is less than, but this is the overall pattern. And that's what we mean by participation. And then the question is, for someone like Jordan Peterson, who is still kind of on the fence about the resurrection, how far can this go? And Christians have always answered, well, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe we will participate in new life in a very full and rich way, even beyond this world, which ends in death. All right, we're out of time. I hope it made sense. Good. Yes, yes. Let's pray. Lord, this is, we know how to act it out. We struggle to understand it and communicate it. But it has been communicated to us. And we continue the tradition of communicating it to us, each other. But the most important thing is to continue to act it out in front of each other. Help us, Lord, to understand this important chapter of Romans. We are united with Christ in his death. And the ceremony for that is baptism. We participate in his death through baptism. And if we participate with him in his death, we will be raised like him 
into new life. Help us, Lord, to walk in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.